Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I invite you to take out your Bibles in the pews there and turn to page 372 as Judges chapter 1 and also to have it open or be able to uh, flip quickly to Judges chapter 11, uh, because we're going to be looking at that. Well, we are starting our series, or we're continuing in our series, Messy People, Merciful God. Uh, it's a series that's taking us through the book of Judges, looking at the messiness of sin and how that directs us towards our need for the cross. Uh, last week, we started off in remembering the big story that Judges is part of. So looking at... Um, Israel, as they were rescued from Egypt, and they were kind of taught by Moses uh, through God's law how to be a people that live together in harmony. And they had this training in the wilderness for, for living together in peace, and then they had this apprenticeship by Joshua, kind of leading them into the promised land, but this whole time, they're anticipating this time where they can be in a land where they can have this stability, and they can live together in this peace and experience that wholeness. And that's where we begin Judges with this hope of living into that wholeness that creation was meant for. It was almost to be a, a return in a way to the way it was like in Eden or a new sort of Eden. This was the, the undoing of the curse that they were expecting to live into. But unfortunately, that's not what we find in Judges in Judges a big picture that helped summarize it for me is this downward spiral. And if I, if I were to draw this one again, I'd have the spiral kind of going out because things get messier and messier as things progress. As the story goes on, people go deeper and deeper into their sin, and this affects the whole way that society works. This affects the relationships that people have. And today we're going to see how this looks in two different scenarios, two different judges that we'll see. The first is Othniel, the other one is Jephthah, uh, two judges that may have gotten skipped in Sunday school or ones that we might not remember, uh, but two that are important in understanding the framework of judges as a whole. So we're going to begin looking at Judges chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, and then Judges 11. Before we turn to God's word, let's pray. Through your word, Holy Spirit, bring us closer to our Savior. And in response, triune God, prompt our hearts to offer you sincere thanks for our salvation. In the strong name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. Verse 9. After that... Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshthai, uh, Ahim, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. 
Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, so Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Now to turn to Judges chapter 11. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth as far as Ebel Keramim. Thus, Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of trembles? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord I cannot break. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so back in 2020, just a couple of years ago, um, a book by the name of Jesus and John Wayne was released. Uh, this was a book that tries to tell the story of evangelicalism in North America, or kind of baseline Christianity in North America, and how it had gotten masculinity wrong, how Jesus had been distorted by kind of a Hollywood lens, the way that people talk about Jesus you would almost think that they're talking about this kind of gunslinging Western film star, John Wayne. Uh, this book ended up being a surprise hit. It only sold a couple hundred copies in its first few weeks, uh, but as the year went on, it went on to the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, there was something about this book that struck a chord with people. It was, it was touching on a meaningful subject. In telling the story of Christians getting masculinity wrong, it was answering questions that people were asking at that time, like questions of, uh, regarding the abuses that they were seeing in the headlines. Now, whether or not you agree with the argument that's made in Jesus and John Wayne, it's a little besides the point for today. Uh, today, I just want to acknowledge that this subject matters, that people are talking about this today in a way that they hadn't in the past, that, that Jesus and John Wayne, books like this weren't selling many copies and weren't on the top of the charts 10 years ago or 20 years ago. 
people are looking for answers to why unhealthy views of men and women are often perpetuated in the church. They're wondering why the church doesn't have this reputation for flourishing in relationships between men and women, but instead often has this reputation in our broader culture for the opposite of that. Now, I think Jesus and John Wayne, I, I, there's a lot of different books that I could have chosen. Uh, I think that one's particularly interesting for us because the person who wrote it is someone that grew up in the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, she attended Dort College. She teaches at Calvin University as a history professor. Uh, when, when she's talking about the church and, and her own experiences, when she looks at why she wanted to study this subject specifically, it's not just coming from any church. Um, this is us. Now, one thing that I noted when looking through the book of Judges that surprised me a little bit was how much it talked about women all the way through the book. And it was surprising because if you read through Genesis or 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, you don't get that many stories about women. So when you see something different and some unique, something unique, you ask yourself, why is it there? And throughout the story of Judges, we find that it is there because it's one of the ways that they demonstrate this downward spiral. We have a movement throughout Judges where the relationship between men and women in the beginning lead towards flourishing, but by the end, it's the opposite. It's leading to death. The Bible doesn't leave it to just simply the fact that Israel was living into sin. They named sins. They have stories, stories that include worse and worse treatment of women. And rather than just surveying every judge and seeing how this plays out through the book, uh, we're just going to drop in and look at two different stories, highlight how this comes up in the stories of Othniel and of Jephthah. So first, we look at Othniel. Um, Othniel is in the beginning of the book. When it comes to that spiral, it's right at the top. Things are looking good for Israel. Uh, Othniel's a judge. His military conquests show up in Judges chapter 3. But here, we have Othniel showing up in Judges chapter 1. And it's a bit of a strange story if you look at it in the context. We have in Judges chapter 1 this list of different conquests. We got them entering into the promised land, and you have a list of the different places that they're entering into, and all of a sudden we get this story of Othniel and Aksa, his wife. And when we see something kind of unusual, we might want to think, why is it there? That the, the people that are putting this together, the author is not just inserting a random story that he thinks is interesting, but there's a purpose behind that story. In looking at the purpose for this story, I want to highlight one aspect here in verse 15. This is where Aksa asks her father for a special favor. Since she has been given land in the Negev, she asks for springs of water, and then she is given these upper and lower springs. If we're just reading through, this might not make that much sense, especially if we're not too familiar with the land. Um, but when we look at this word, Negev, 
This is a word that, that captures a large portion of the land in Israel. It's the southern part, and there is virtually no rainfall in that region. It is dry, desolate, desert land. You can't grow things in the Negev. It makes for very hard living. It's a place where you would need streams of water and able to find flourishing and life. Here's just a couple of pictures to help you picture it. And we don't, that's not the important part here. The important part is looking um, around. This is all dry land. Um, the, the dark spots, that's not vegetation or anything. That's just a kind of ancient Jurassic Age rock, kind of the basalt showing through. So this is all dry land. A similar picture from a different region of the Negev. Again, we don't see anything green. And here's a picture where there's a stream in that region, and you get this green bits. You have trees, and if this was a plain and this was opened up a little bit more, you would see palm trees, you would see fields that are being irrigated, you would find life, animals would be coming through. Flourishing is attached to this idea of the streams. So the story ends up being about how Othniel experiences blessing in the land, how dry and parched land he has given living water and a constant supply. And this is brought to him not on his own accord, but through Aksa. She, in this story, in the beginning of the book, has a voice. She has authority. She is the one who secures and mediates blessing. She, this is the kind of story that we would expect to see in a return to this Eden-like state. It's the story that we would expect to see in the reversal of the curse. But sadly, if we know the trajectory of judges, we'll know that this doesn't last for very long. And our example for this is the story of Jephthah. This stands in direct contrast to Othniel's story, where in Othniel's story, a vow from a father brought life and flourishing in Jephthah's, it causes death. Now, a recap of that story again. Jephthah is a judge who makes an oath that if God makes him, uh, gives him a victory, he will sacrifice whatever comes out of the door when he arrives at home and cultural practice of that day is that the, the women would welcome in the, the warriors from their victory. So you have to at least think it's not customary for a lamb to come out and welcome the warriors. That human sacrifice must have at least been crossing his mind as a possibility here. After God gives him the victory, he is greeted with his daughter, dancing to greet in victory in Jephthah shows his commitment in following through. And to be clear on this, Jephthah is not to be praised for his actions here. It's, it's not this virtue of his strength in following through on his word. That's the point of the story. If he knew the character of God, he would not have made that vow. If he knew the character of God, he would not have followed through. And what's more, if he even knew God's law, he would know that he wouldn't have to follow through on this. There are several instances in Leviticus that absolve people from these types of oaths. Specifically, if you want to see an example, you can look at Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In that, there is different costs that you can pay uh, to the priest 
to absolve yourself of an oath like this. It would have cost him possibly about 10 shekels to get him out of this if he was aware of what God had wanted. The point is being made here in this story that even the leaders of Israel have become corrupt. The downward spiral is such that he is doing the exact opposite of what you would expect to see of Eden restored. Instead of blessing that you find in Othniel and Aksa, you find death. And that's, it's not an isolated incident either throughout Judges. If you read through it, you'll find stories like the story of Sisera and Jael. You'll find Samson's wife who is burned to death. Or the, or the very messy story at the end of the book where a concubine ends up getting cut into 12 pieces and sent to each tribe in Israel. Just know that this is a larger part of a pattern in a book that signals things are starting to spiral out of control more and more, and it's shown through the poor treatment of women. We find these gruesome stories here that, that sin is not just something that's named in theory, but it can be found in stories of leaders failing. Like in our visual for today of people being bound, of people being oppressed through sin, leading to death rather than life. It gets messier and messier. The, the writers in Judges, the writer seems to go out of their way in highlighting this relationship between men and women and how it had become more destructive. This is a sign that they are failing to live as God's holy people. And this means that when we come across books like Jesus and John Wayne, and books that are trying to point out to us the ways in which things are leading to destruction rather than flourishing or oppression rather than flourishing, it should give us a moment to pause and think that maybe we are not so far from the messiness that we find in Judges after all. Now, in creation, or... Um, the flourishing of relationships of, of men and women is something that we expect to find if we know the story of creation. If we look at Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we'll find that something that's embedded into creation was that this relationship was meant to lead towards flourishing. In Genesis 2, we have this specific story here where Adam is seeking a helper. God creates a woman, a suitable helper for Adam. Now, that word I want to highlight and just reflect on, because I think that informs our perspective of how Judges plays out. This word um, has been used all sorts of ways. Um, helper could be used to show that Eve was a bit of an afterthought, that she's like an assistant just there to help Adam. Uh, you could imagine how this could get skewed and distorted, that there's all sorts of teachings that use this for an excuse for women to be subjugated or relegated to a particular place because it appears to them to be biblical, that the woman was there to help. But this does not actually stand true to the way that helper is used throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible. If we look at all the times that helper is used, we'll find that 
more often than not, helper is a word that describes God, that God is Israel's helper. So this word helper on its own cannot be concluded that this person is any way inferior. If anything, the evidence stacks the, the other way. Uh, helper isn't so much uh, something that describes Eve so much as it describes something about Adam. Namely, it looks at his insufficiency. Adam is not complete on his own. Adam cannot do it. Even before the fall, Adam needs someone to help mediate God's blessings, to lead creation into its flourishing. It can also be said that Eve's role as helper, it's giving her a priestly-like role. She is to help Adam in seeing the goodness and fullness that they were created for. Together they are to be fruitful and to multiply. Together they are to fill the earth with blessings. This is what is intended for God's creation. That we do not do things on our own, that we need other people to mediate God's goodness. And this is what we find in Judges chapter 1. A return to this relationship that offers flourishing. Now, just for a moment, I want us to consider two um, challenges and one suggestion off of that before moving on to the next piece. The two suggestions or two challenges are that this ought to have us resist individualism to recognize that we are not complete on our own, that we need others. How can we resist individualism where we think we're simply okay on our own, whether spiritually or in other areas? This will likely come up again uh, when we just see the pattern throughout Judges of Othniel is one that rallies Israel together and they fight together. And by the end, you get Samson, who's this rogue person working alone, thinking he can do things, um, signaling the brokenness that he has. The second challenge is how can you be a helper in the richest sense of that term? In what way can you be someone that helps to show God's blessings to the people around you? And a suggestion. Uh, if I were to offer a, a devotional passage, a passage that you can read with your households for this week, it would be Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, particularly, uh, there's a part in it that calls towards our relationships for those who are married. There is an encouragement here for a sacrifice on behalf of the other person, one that is patterned after Christ and his, um, or that we are to be called towards mutual submission to one another in Christ. What if we took this as a central cue in our marriages and our friendships? Where the other person that you are close with isn't there simply as a tool to prop up your self-identity, isn't just there to try and make you happy, that's, that, that's not their central purpose. But you're called to serve each other in, able, in order to bring them into flourishing that they were made for. I invite you to look at Ephesians chapter 5 from the lens of an invitation for a more Eden way like of living. 
a way of living that resists the destruction that we find in Jephthah's story and the later stories of Judges, a way of living that resists the types of critiques that show up in the book Jesus and John Wayne, critique, critiques that point out the current Christian culture and its failure of living into the Genesis 2 ideal, how we end up looking a little bit too much like the second half of Judges. Now, I mentioned there was lots of different resources I could have turned to. Jesus and John Wayne is the only one. Um, another place that I just want to point out that criticizes the church's commonly held views around masculinity and, and femininity is a report that was recently released that the CRC commissioned uh, to look at sexuality. The report um, has this to say, um, and this is a part that stood out to me, um, where it, it was trying to correct some of the values that we had around what makes a, a Christian man or a Christian woman. It says, our culture constantly values men specifically for their distinction from women and mocks them with female nicknames if they fail. At the same time, the church often subtly or overtly exerts the same pressures on young men by promoting unbiblical stereotypes, relying on teaching from popular websites and books that promote a notion of manhood as displaying strength in comparison to women and of womanhood as utility and attractiveness to men. So basically what that quote is saying is that far too often Christians talk about manliness or the role of the Christian women, it's, it's too often just mimicking our, our culture. Or, or it's, it's pointing back to a not-so-distant past or ideal that we have that's based on cultural values. This report calls out the church in saying that if we want to contribute anything meaningful around the conversation of sexuality, we need to be able to grow in our awareness of how we unintentionally promote unbiblical stereotypes. It then contrasts it with what the gospel does. It says, in contrast, the gospel brings peace and freedom to us as well or as sexual beings. Instead of putting us in boxes, God has created us male and female in his own image with freedom and creativity. The gospel prompts us to be different. And, and notice the call in here isn't towards relevancy, but towards faithfulness to the gospel. Gospel-centered people ought to be able to provide the best possible place for those who are struggling. It makes a statement that the boxes that sometimes we have that confine actually hinder in seeing the gospel. Now, I've mentioned this because I've seen this play out um, in my, amongst my own friends, um, that these distortions, it's, it's often when, when they have left the church, it's not because they have this hard idea of who God is and that they're struggling with these bigger doctrines. It's often around some of these things on the ground of how does this play out? How is the church resisting some of the harmful things that we see in our culture around us? How is the church perhaps perpetuated cultural stereotypes rather than being a place where healing is found. 
This is a topic that will continue to be important as it becomes more important in the culture around us. We need to be hearing the voices of the hurt, exploring what the Bible has to say, and continuing to seek to be a people who follow Christ's example. And speaking of Christ, um, it may be of interest to note that the closest anticipations of Christ in the book of Judges are not the judges themselves, especially in the second half of Judges. Uh, the closest anticipations of Christ are found in the women, whether it's Jephthah's daughter who dies on behalf of the people or in the later part in Judges 19, the concubine from Bethlehem who, after being or who rides on a donkey towards Jerusalem who after being betrayed by her people is killed uh, to, use to bring peace to the nation. We find that women in the second half of Judges have these anticipations of the one who will come to die on behalf of humanity and will bring the ultimate peace for the people. And as we read through these stories and we see just the messiness of the people here, I think it's important not to get bogged down simply with the messiness because we have to remember that other point, that this is pointing us towards the merciful God. The real amazing thing when we look at the story is that God doesn't look down and say, well, that's it. I'm, I'm done with these people. I rescue them from Egypt. I send Moses to teach them how to live in the promised land. I even have Joshua as an apprentice. I give them this land, and I send judge after judge to save Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon. And now this with Jephthah? Like, I'm, I'm done with these people. Like, God doesn't say that. God sticks with them. You'd think if God was like most of us, Judges would be a much shorter book. But God doesn't just give a second chance. He gives the third, a fourth, an eighth, a twelfth. God's mercy continues to be extended to the people in the midst of very real messiness. We do well in remembering this as a church as well. That the messiness that we find ourselves in we have a God who shows mercy time and time again to those who call on him. God is the one who stays faithful to the people even when they do not. There's a story that highlights God's abundant grace, the near incomprehensible level of grace that we'll see later as we look towards the cross. We know that when we turn to this God, there is forgiveness. And may that give us an encouragement to come before God with whatever we have. We don't have to hide our brokenness. We can offer it before God and invite God in the midst of it in order to find that healing. And as people who are offered forgiveness, we are too, we're also called into holy living. We're called to live together in a way that points towards that wholeness that we are made for, serving each other, in that selfless pattern of Christ, knowing that through the Spirit, we too are to be formed into his likeness as people who are called to live into that peace and flourishing that was intended for all of creation. So to finish, uh, this Lent, 
As we direct our attention towards the cross, remember this aspect of it, that this is a sign of God's grace. We have a God who is merciful when we call out to him in the midst of our mess. Let's pray. Lord, we look around at news stories. We continue to see stories of abuse coming from churches. We recognize that the problems that we see in judges are not some ancient past, but we carry the same struggles only in different ways. Through your Spirit, guide us. May we be the safest and the best place for people who are hurting. May we be good listeners of the hurt around us that we may lament with those hurting. May we repent when we see how we have hurt others. We trust and believe that you are a God whose truth is beautiful and that beauty can be spoken into each and every culture. Give us wisdom to be able to be people who can share that beauty in relation to how you have created us as men and women. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.